This is Not Another Church Podcast with your host, Pastor Tom. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. This is another episode of Not Another Church Podcast, and uh, I want us to take a subject today that uh, when I, I say the title, people are going to uh, immediately you want to fall asleep. Uh, and it's Christian <laughs> ethics. And uh, here's the reality. I, I, when I was in seminary, this was a class that I kind of put off um, because of exactly what we're talking about. I, I figured it would be boring. The The professor at Southeastern is somewhat well-known, Dr. Heimbach. He actually worked for the Bush administration, and he developed the just war theory for the first Iraq war. Um that is a branch of Christian ethics is just war, justifying things. I will say that walking out of that class, there is no one singular class at seminary that I've used that material more in my day-to-day life as a minister. There's no class that stretched me more where I had to think and I had to, to logic. And there is no subject that overarches into a Christian's life. So let me begin by just kind of explaining what we're talking about. The idea of Christian ethics is is a theological morality that covers everything that we do. It is a the way that we worldview and the way that we choose to if I which stores I'm going to shop at, what you know whether or not we're going to boycott Disney, down to, you know, what kind of car that I buy. Um, is it ethically responsible for me to, to, be, to be armed? Is it ethically responsible for uh, me to, to give a college that maybe has professors that support abortion tuition for my children? That all of those kind of things up to, uh, I have literally been in the hospital uh, to see a member of this church been stopped by a family that I didn't know and said, hey, you're the pastor at North Glencoe, right? And yeah, yeah, I am. We need to ask you. And they, as they lay the scenario out, they're asking me to determine whether or not they should unplug Mama. Um, and so this is a framework. Christian, the idea of Christian ethics is this framework that we then hang every decision that we make in our life on because the the bible doesn't tell us whether or not i should uh is it wrong for me to to take uh recreational marijuana is it wrong for me to to um take an aspirin if it's wrong for me to to recreationally you know kind of uh, to, to chill out, to smoke a joint, why would it be wrong for me, or why would it not be wrong then for me to, to take some Tylenol if I get a headache? But it covers all aspects of our Christian walk, and it lays down principles that I, I think when I talk about how um, we oftentimes, unfortunately, in the church today are agnostic in the way that we make decisions, it's because people haven't taken the time to teach this subject. Because it's it doesn't sound exciting. If I were to put something on the marquee that said, Christian ethics class tonight, there wouldn't be anybody that showed up. I mean, let's just be honest. Whereas if I put on the marquee, um, we're, we're going to look at end times teaching, I'd fill this sanctuary up because that's something that people are interested in. But I'll be honest. For most believers, the next uh, end times event that they'll experience in their life is going to be their own death. And Christian ethics is something that every day we should have the framework in place that it, it informs our decision. It informs how we child rear. It informs how we do things. And so um, do we understand the topic? Do we? Yeah. Is there, well, and let me just say, I'm going to throw out that when you first told us the subject for today, I got to thinking about one of the classes that most impacted me in college was an ethics class. And um, my major was communications at Jacksonville State University. And at the time, we had to choose between public relations, print, or broadcast. You kind of focused your classes on one of those, but everybody had to go through ethics. And I I will never forget Dr. Eoff um, was my professor at the time and how we went through. And it was one of those classes that I too thought would be extremely boring. I thought I'm not interested in it, but after going through it, 
it was to push and make you think. Now, I know that, you know, somebody at home probably has giggled a little bit, just as I said, in journalism, they actually teach ethics, but, um, <laughs> you know, but they do. They pushed us all and made us stop and think, and, and it was one of the classes that there are examples of it that, that still sticks to this day. Now, obviously, that was not within a Christian framework. That was a, a secular, you know, moralistic um, ethics class, but even that, I mean, we all have it. We've all experienced it. And it is an area where when you stop and think it through, it begins to impact how you live your life and how you make decisions. And um, there's a particular street in Jacksonville at the university that it's downhill. It's right in front of the main administrative building and speed limit's like 25. And Dr. Egoff, you know, pushed us one day. I'll never forget. We all laughed because she said, my car doesn't idle at 25. And I've, <laughs> you know, and I've used that so many times over the years as I've laughed and thought about that. But going downhill on that one, you ride your brakes the whole way down. It's 25. It's full of college students and everybody going to and from work and you know it's a congested area but it's one of those that was one of those days at college where we laughed and carried on and had a conversation and a good debate and so within the Christian framework once you take that idea of ethics and start to apply it to how you live your life the right and wrong and how you make your decisions I think it's um I think it's pretty important. So, which is a great segue, any ethics class, whether it's in a secular university, I, I in my undergrad work, did take an ethics class at, at a secular university, and it was, it was very different. Some of the same principles apply, but... Um, one of the things that ethics classes like to do is create uh, scenarios. And yes. then you're given <laughs> yes. the scenario, you have to give a response of what you think is, is ethically sound. And then obviously this being academic, you have to write a paper on why that is. And uh, Anne, real, my wife, really enjoyed the ethics class case. So Anne loved it when I would come home with the dilemmas that we were given every day. And I wanted to share, to kind of get a, get this ball rolling, I wanted to share some of some of the ethical dilemmas that we dealt with. The first one that Anne always re remembers really well because of the way that we, we joked about it in the house was this. Uh, the dilemma is, is you are in a room. Now, like it, with anything, suspend belief. Don't try to think about why you're in this room. So you're in a room and in the room is a button and you're told that if you push that button, it would unleash uh, a nuclear holocaust on the city of Atlanta. So if you push this button, an atomic bomb is going to be dropped in downtown Atlanta. A baby is brought into the room and at gunpoint you're told you must choose whether to kill the baby or to push the button to destroy Atlanta. What do you do? Well, there's, there's no good answer. <laughs> and so I'm Tom Cruise and it's Mission Impossible. <laughs> I, I disarmed them. And <laughs> what, what was really funny is it, between us, Anne was like, I'm sorry if you live in Atlanta. There's no way that I could hurt I can hurt a baby that's in front of me. And I and my and I was the exact opposite. I'm like, but there's thousands of babies. Thousands of babies. That's where my mind went. There's a yeah. thousand millions of babies. Yes. In that so I, I wrote this long paper justifying why I could murder the baby. <laughs> Wait, did you have to kill the baby? Uh, yes. The, I'm Put at gunpoint, I'm killing the baby or I'm pushing the button to destroy Atlanta. Oh, oh God. And so, um, and then this, I, as I recall, this was the very first dilemma because knowing what I know now from about midway in the class, I, I would have known the correct answer. The correct answer is you do neither and you let them shoot you. Yeah, that's oh, what I'm thinking. Yeah. That, I, that's, I was it's thinking, C, I, right? I think they'll just have to take me out. <laughs> you know, B Because the, the hallmark of Christian ethics is one of the primary principles is, is you do what the Bible teaches you to do regardless of the consequences and it's not your responsibility to plan out and this is going to cause this to happen which causes this to happen to cause this to happen you just do what you're supposed to do and you let the consequences fall as they might and so in this particular case but that means i let go of control of the things that are going to happen right <laughs> well and and the example that that is given is uh cory tim boom in the hiding place uh saying that uh, and, and arguing with her father about the fact that she could not lie if she was directly asked if they were, they were protecting Jews. And those of you that may not know the story of The Hiding Place, which, by the way, I'd strongly recommend reading. It's a great book, and it's an easy book to read. Uh, the Timboom family um, 
took in Jewish families. They were a Christian family in Holland. They took in Jewish families that were living around them and hid them for several years until they, they were caught. And so her father says, if you're ever asked, uh, and at some point they'll figure out that these Jewish families have just disappeared, and here we're sitting here. He, her father was a clock maker and clock repairman. Uh, they'll figure it out. And she, she could not, because of her relationship with Christ, could not lie. She said, I will not lie. And so, sure enough, in the book, it comes down to that point where, uh, and where they had kept the Jews was they, before the, the, this, the pogroms and everything occurred, they had a potato cellar, and they had taken that potato cellar, which was in their kitchen, and converted it into an apartment, and so their kitchen table literally sat on top of a trap door that went down into this potato cellar that was an apartment that had several Jewish families in it. So uh, as you can imagine, the, the, it actually happened where um, these Gestapo troops come into their house. They look everywhere in the house. They ask everybody, and they look at her and say, are you housing any Jewish families? And she, uh, with tears in her eyes, realizing that everything was on the line, just trusted God and said, yes, they're under the table. And the Gestapo officer who was questioning her slapped her and said, don't lie to me, child. Are there any Jewish families in this house? And so God had worked, even though she did what she felt like God was calling her to do, God arranged the circumstances to where those families were still protected. And so that, that's kind of an example of in Christian ethics, we don't say I'm voting for this person because if I don't, these th thousand things could happen. We vote for who in our conscience we can, we can vote for. We don't worry ourselves with the consequences. The consequences are in God's hands. We do what the Bible teaches us to do. Can I share one that I heard from? Um, it was actually in a sermon that Ravi Zacharias gave. It was a man that he knew was in a communist country. And he had already been arrested more than once, served time in a communist um, prison camp. It was pretty horrible. He tells a little bit of the background of that story, but the man gets out and then um, he believes he's about to be arrested again. And he and several other people have made a plan to escape this communist country. They are going to get on a boat and they're going to get out on the sea and go to a neighboring country to get away. Um, there's a group of soldiers come after him one night, uh, two actually, not a group, it was two, that came after him and held, you know, pushed him up against the wall and they're throwing him, I, we hear you're making a plan to leave the country and escape and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he said, he tells them no. He lies to them. Okay, so the Holy Spirit gets after him after they leave. You know, he feels guilty because he knows what he's done is wrong. And he told God, um, he said, if this happens again, then I will be honest with them. Um, and they came back within a couple of days and they did the same thing to him, questioned him, harassed him, come to find out they wanted to leave with his group. Wow. And those two men were the only reason the group stayed alive on the open seas. I, I personally had a similar situation when we were, um, I was in a, a Muslim country and I was with a group, group of people and part of what we were doing was taking Bibles that, uh, uh, we're in that native language, and we were giving. We would go to villages that were extremely rural, not not like anything rural in the United States. Like when I say rural, I'm saying um, starting in March, they would start saving cow patties and drying them out to burn. That was their their fuel, and we were getting Bibles into those those areas. And we had been up in the mountains and distributed a bunch of Bibles, but we still had probably thirty, forty in the van. And so we we came down the mountain and uh, there was a traffic stop in front of us. And we didn't think anything of it that the gendarme having traffic stops looking for somebody isn't all that unusual. Uh, and, the, and all the little guys, uh, the soldiers had a piece of paper with uh, information and pictures. And they get to, as our vehicle approaches the rope that they had laid out as kind of a traffic stop, I, I can see this guy look at our vehicle, look down at his paper, look at our vehicle, and then run and go get some of the other people. So we were the purpose for the traffic stop. And so they made us go to this uh, little gendarme police station kind of thing. And um, the, the, uh, guy walks up to the driver's side window and says, who, who is in charge? And the driver points to me and says, him. 
And so I'm, I'm like, really, dude? Th- thanks. <laughs> and so everybody kind of moves over. I was sitting in the, the passenger window, and I, we've, they've got multiple firearms pointed at us. It was a high-stress moment, and the guy says, um, are y'all carrying any Bibles? And I, I had that split second of, no, not us. <laughs> no, we're just on a hiking trip kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I thankfully, through the Lord working, I said, yes. And he said, are you giving them out in the village? And I said, yes. And he said, why? And I said, because we believe that they need to read those Bibles. And so he ended up pulling us out and taking everything out of the vehicle and then grabbing one of the guys and questioning him. And we found out through that, that they already knew that we had Bibles. There's they couldn't arrest us for distributing or getting the Bibles. The whole plan was they wanted to arrest us for lying to the authorities. And so God protected us in that moment by me just saying, consequences be damned, I'm going to be honest. Be honest. Yeah. And so I, I've experienced that kind of that scary moment like that. And so what we do with Christian ethics is this, we, we don't... Uh, we take whatever is happening where that ethical dilemma is occurring, we then kind of strip it down to its barest points and then apply the Bible. I do this little exercise, like I said, a thousand times a day by removing the characters. If somebody in the church comes to me and says, this is going on, or if, if I'm in a situation, I, I kind of mentally and emotionally remove the characters. It's easy if you know people to go to give people the benefit of the doubt or to look at people and think, well, they're worse off than this other person. I know him. He's a liar. I know him. He's sorry. Uh, you know, every time I turn around, they're asking for something, that sort of thing. I, I strip the personalities out and just make it person A and person B. What does the Bible say? say, and then add the personalities back in and say, well, the Bible's really clear in this area. And almost always, if we do that, the answer is clear. We may not like the answer. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Very often we don't like it. It's not what I want to do. It's not what I feel, but being a follower of Christ means that he gets to have the authority in what we say and do. So in the bigger issues where where, what we do is in historically, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote the the work that some of you may have heard of, the Summa Theologica. Uh, And in that, he sets down that every decision that we make, and this is really the beginning, historic beginnings of Christian ethics being its kind of own little field. Everything comes down to the golden rule that Every decision that I make with interacting with people, I make that based on first that I'm required to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And so anything specifically that God has commanded that we don't do, we don't do. Because he said, I want all of your heart. And so he's revealed himself through the word, and so I have to follow that. In other issues, then it comes down to where Jesus said, the second one, when Jesus was asked what the greatest command was, the second one's just like the first one. So he, Jesus actually elevates the second one up to, hey, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, but also you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And we call that the, the golden rule. And so ethically, that means that I can look at a circumstance and go, how would I want to be treated if I was that other person? So uh, if I'm asked, should we, is it ethically right or wrong for me to um, keep me more on um, life support? You first, uh, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We ask the question, um, who would we be to take life? We don't have that right. Mama is made in the image of God and we do not have the right to take her life. But there's artificial things in place that's keeping her alive. The question then becomes, are those artificial means suspending the inevitable or are they a treatment option? Are we are the machines keeping her alive so that this medicine can work? Are the machines keeping her alive so that there's a treatment. If there's any hint that 
it, this is a treatment option, not a situation where um, we're just prolonging the inevitable, then again, the question's taken away from us. We don't have the right to not do everything in our power to save mama because she's made in the image of God. If the answer to both of those questions are uh, no, then you come to, then we have to ask the question, how would we want to be in that situation? And that answer may be different for different people. But I have had lots of situations, especially with someone who is having uh, breathing issues where that's been, the, the disease has progressed to the point to where the person is struggling to breathe. Um, pulmonary fibrosis, lung cancer, uh, those, those sort of things. I've had family members say, if we start the morphine treatment, which, by the way, morphine doesn't, isn't just given as a means to alleviate pain. It's also a way to numb the gag reflex or the, the gasping reflex that's forebrain. That's the animal side of our brain that's going to make you fight for breath. And so that's going to kind of lessen that. And someone say, well, Momo is not a dog that we can just put down. Because in their mind, they're thinking... You know, we're going to give them this shot and then they're just going to ease out. We, we can't do that. And so, and I will turn the question back around and say, would you want to be in a situation where somebody's, it feels like you're being choked and you can't breathe? Well, no, I certainly wouldn't want to be that way. So if that's the case, then you've answered your own question. You have to give them the respect to the same way you would want to be treated. You wouldn't want to be in a situation where, and anybody that's been in the room with someone that's struggling to breathe, that, that feeling of panic for, for the observer sets in. You don't want them to continue not being able to breathe. And so the ease of suffering, we, we, you know, you haven't used that phrase in there, but as we're talking through in a medical condition and something like that, when you are trying to ease things for them and make it better. And I think that very often there's a lot of dilemma in Christian ethics that goes into the medical field. I'll never forget here, a small group here at church, we had a, there was a nurse in the room. And as we were debating and discussing the topics of um, even abortion and she shared a story with us about a young girl that was 12 that had been um, abused by an older family member. And the child was still so young developmentally. Because, you know, around 12, you've got the kids who are already acting like they're 18 or you've got the ones who are still in their development. They're just not quite there. They're still childlike in a lot of ways in, in, in that children's development time. And for her, she shared the story of this little girl that was holding on to a teddy bear giving birth to a baby that had been forced on her. And she talked about abortion versus, um, you know, um, sparing the life of that and the, the reproduction and the things that it was doing to that 12-year-old girl's body. Um, it was very difficult for her as a nurse as we were going through that story to, to talk about that. But then we also debated the issues that you face with how is one life that's present in front of you holding a teddy bear worth more than the life of that young baby that's being born into life this day? Um, I think the medical field has some very difficult things that they have to face as they're going through each of those. And even today, um, as we record this, we're experiencing a pandemic from the coronavirus. I can't imagine how many... Um, around the world in the medical profession have had to face whether or not who do we treat? Right, who, yeah, who as, you, we, as you triage. Yeah, as you triage this, who do you treat? How do you do that? How do you, um, who do you help first? You know, all of those things, it carries areas where life begins to get complicated because sin ha is in the world. All of that is a result of sin, whether it's natural problems with uh, sickness and disease or whether it's sin where someone's perpetuated a wrong upon someone else. Um, each one of those scenarios that we face are there because of sin. Absolutely. And one of the uh, dilemmas that I have, uh, I personally struggled with for a long time that um, is whether or not um, a person should arm themselves to defend themselves with, with a firearm. Yeah, we've talked about that. And so... I, I, the first, in this ethics class, I had to write a paper, and I'll show you how 
immature I was at the time, I had to write a paper about uh, whether or not you would take someone's life uh, in self-defense. And I, uh, I, there's a principle that's called the Jim Elliott principle that I enacted. And Jim Elliott did this when he went to, he was a, Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. He uh, had a, a 38 revolver with him when he was, was killed. He had written in his journals that he did not think that he would use that weapon to actually defend himself because if he killed one of those Aka Indians, they would go to hell. If he was killed, he would go to heaven. And so with him applying the Christian ethic that we're talking about here, he said it would be better for me to die. And then the attention that would be brought would cause other missionaries to come and share the gospel and they would surely get saved as opposed to defending himself. And so in my paper where I would say, would you, I said, I leaned on that and said, I, I didn't think that if it was just me, uh, that I would be able to take take another person's life to just defend myself. Uh, easily the, the question if would I take someone else's life to defend my family, that I, again, that comes back to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. I'm commanded to be the defender of my family. I'm specifically told to do that. So that, there's no ethical, to me, there's no ethical dilemma there. But if it's just me and somebody else in a dark alleyway, um, I wrote in this paper that I would, I would rather die than take their life. Um, and my but what about that instinct to survive, Dom? But the, the professor tough. calls me in his office and pointed out an even bigger point. So, brother, what your paper tells me is, is that if a Christian attacked you, you would kill them. You'd, you'd take out the deacon. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but you wouldn't. No, to deacons. <laughs> First, you know Jesus. <laughs> if Let's so. for just a minute. <laughs> Because if you're a believer, I'll take you out in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> Save me a seat at the table. You're gone. Uh, but, but if you're lost, then I, I uh, which is a good point. Think about that. We're going to take a quick break to, uh, uh, to, to pay the bills, and then we'll come back to Not Another Church podcast. Hey, North Glencoe, this is Pastor Tom. I want to talk about uh, what's going on in our world right now. Um, a few months ago, COVID was something that we heard about on the news. It was maybe something that was affecting uh, some folks in a nursing home, but for most of us, it wasn't very personal. It didn't affect me or my family. Uh, for the last month or so, we've had people in the church who've, who've gotten uh, COVID. There are people that you know, your neighbors, maybe you yourself have COVID. The truth of God's word is still the truth of God's word. Jesus, in talking to his disciples in the book of Luke, says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I want to address fear. We don't have to separate out common sense from fear. It's wise for you to use hand sanitizer. It's wise for you to, to wear a mask when you're around others. It's wise for you, just smart, good common sense, for you to take precautions. That doesn't mean that you live your life in fear. It doesn't mean that you allow the fear that maybe you're going to contract it, or if you do contract this disease, to ruin your life. Jesus said it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to give you the kingdom. He wants you to have everything that he has available for you. Now, it doesn't mean that everything's going to happen the way that you want it to. It doesn't mean that we get a new truck and a pony. But it means that everything that comes at you, everything that is allowed into your life, first passes through the hands of a loving Father. So I implore, lean on God's Word. Be anxious for nothing. Don't live your life in fear. As you make decisions about whether or not to come to church, whether or not to... Uh, give, whether or not to, to be around family this holiday season. Use common sense. Be smart. But don't make decisions based on fear. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Go serve your king.
So where we were is we were talking about um, what we were talking about whether or not in self-defense, if it was just you and another person, could you take another life? And uh, as I had said, pointed out that, or my professor pointed out to me that uh, in my ethic that I could take out another believer, but um, I could not uh, take out a lost person. And he pointed out to me, which I hadn't thought of because uh, we don't think, uh, what's your ethical position then to, if that person kills you, they're probably going to kill other people. If they're willing to take your life over a wallet, they're willing to take someone else's life. And so one of the things about Christian ethics is you kind of have, do have to think through what are the consequences of that? So that, um, when people come to the church and, and I know, you know, they'll be, especially around Christmas, there'll be a thousand posts about uh, you should just help those who, who come and ask. And Jesus said, if somebody asked to borrow from you, give it to them. Mm-hmm. So what, when someone comes to the church and says, and you know what, I don't know why, but they almost always have the same lie. It's like we're... we're always, we're going from one state to another. <laughs> I'm going, I'm en route. I've ran out of gas or I've got this car part that's Mama's broken. Mama's dying. Up. We've got to go to we that home. <laughs> yes, I, sometimes I really have to fight the urge to roll my eyes and say, could y'all get together? I heard together? that last week. Can you get a new one? That's a good way to travel too. No, that's harsh of us to laugh. But it, after a few years and you hear these stories over and over again. It's and it's the same story. It's the same one. Oh, my, so, oh, go ahead. no, please. Oh, it's just my favorite one. I, I took a guy one time. He was hungry, and so I went to McDonald's just because it was quick and easy. And he's like, "Man, you know, I just want some Mikasitas. <laughs> you got like flaming cheese and all this." And I'm like, mm. <laughs> and "The whole time." I'm and you're going, going dude. Lord. <laughs> but then I, I had that dilemma of like, okay, if I was hungry and in need, I'd probably want flaming cheese stuff. So. Anyway, oh, bro, that was very sweet of you to say that. I'm like, we could probably cut that out. No, no, I'm, no. I'm thinking that was very sweet. But I'm also, yeah. also, when you're trying to help somebody and they go, no, that's not quite good enough. No. I, I think I want a little bit better. Yeah. And just, you know, yeah. one of the yeah. stories of. You know, I literally here at the church had, and I know I've told the story from the Are pulpit. you telling the sandwich yeah. story? <laughs> I, uh, I frequently here at the church, I will leave food uh, by, you know, like a uh, Johnson's tub of uh, chicken salad and put in the fridge and I just eat while I'm here. It's just faster. And this particular, this was in the summer and some people had brought me some, brought their first fruits before the Lord. And I had some fresh tomatoes and I had made myself a tomato and bologna sandwich, which for those of you that aren't from Alabama, that is redneck <laughs> caviar. Uh, that's some good stuff. Is it on cheap white bread? Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> that white bread that just kind of falls apart yeah. under the, the moisture of the tomato. So I had made myself a, and had, had a plate with my sandwich and had some chips and I'm walking to my office and uh, Carolyn, the, the secretary says, uh, there's somebody here. So I walk up to the door, have my lunch in my hand. And this guy looks at me and says, uh, Hey man, I hadn't eaten in like two days. Is there any way that you could, could, could hook me up, get something to eat? And I, I just handed him, held my food out. It's <laughs> sure, like, yeah. sure, here you go. And he looked at my plate with disgust and said, could you not just give me some money to go to McDonald's? We we have a McDonald's right next door to the church. And it made me mad. I was not. <laughs> I can imagine. I just wish I'd been up there. So, so I, my response was, so my food isn't good enough for you? I'll tell you what you need to do. <laughs> so yeah. in those situations, so let's say that someone comes here and, and they say, you know, I'm, I'm headed to Aniston. I'm almost out of gas. Is there any way that you give me $20 to fill my tank? If at first blush, the most loving thing to do, if I was in that situation real, I would need somebody to help me. But recognizing that realistically, um, that is not what the person's need, greatest need is. And if I give him $20, I'm helping him slowly commit suicide. I'm assisting him in doing something that is destroying his life, the lives of the people who love him, and so in that situation... Now, are you assuming there's some kind of an addiction issue going on here? Almost always. Yeah. I, 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 if you've been around ministry long enough, you can usually even see, you know, the pupils dilated or the pupils 
pinpoint that shakiness that the sores you, on the face the sores the, on the face all yeah. of those those telltale signs um, and the very fact that in this particular county we don't have an unemployment even with Goodyear closing we don't have an unemployment problem there are st lots of manufacturing places that simply can't fill the jobs um, people won't stay on the job yeah. and and so anyone who has a a hunger issue there are there's some underlying problem here now that's not the case all around the country and i i recognize that um so me giving them cash would literally be the most destructive thing that i could do right um not to say that we don't want to help for those who are legitimately in need and, and i will always offer food if someone comes and i'll say hey when's the last time you've eaten we we keep a food pantry here at the church i will offer food uh, i will offer to to go with them to the gas station and fill their tank you would be absolutely surprised at the number of people who get angry and turn it down and, and say yeah oh so you won't just you can't just give me twenty dollars i right. thought you were a christian and so in that scenario, the most destructive thing I could do would be on its face to just hand him some cash. And so we at the church have a policy. We don't give money to anyone. We'll give them food. Mm -hmm. We will give them uh, assistance, in, uh, other assistance ways. in other ways. I have multiple times driven with someone down to the Texaco and filled a tank up. Put them in a hotel. Put them in a hotel. We, we just the other night, stayed out here in the rain and uh, I borrow, let somebody borrow some tools and, and uh, help them as they changed out a fuel pump. We'll do whatever we can to help, but we're not going to help you commit suicide. Because the repercussions of that beyond just you are massive. You have a mama who's sitting at home crying over your situation. I guarantee it. Maybe children. Uh, there, there are children who don't. And so w there has to be some thought put into it as we say, what is the most loving thing for us to do? Paul said the only rule we have in, in the church, the only rule that churches have, is to ask the question, what's the most loving thing here to do? And sometimes the most loving thing to do is to go buy somebody a tank of gas. And sometimes the most loving thing to do is to look somebody in the face and say, son, let me help you get a job. Or to set a boundary in, in relationships. As you go back and forth, we know that there are times, even ethically, to help someone what you're doing when you may back away from someone or set some boundaries on how they treat you or others around you. Um, that also is loving. And a lot of times we have forgotten that as we kind of look at each other and deal with one another in relationships, we think that to love someone is to always give them what they want to work towards their happiness when what our goal should be is to work towards their holiness. And to work toward their e eternal happiness. If, if yeah. I, just, just, just agreeing with somebody that doing what they want to do is okay is, is oftentimes the most destructive thing I can do. And when we were... And it's not a real friend. It's not a real love. It's not a real sincere... When you just take the time and effort to just agree on everything and just to tell everybody what you're doing is okay and what you're doing is fine, I mean, more often than not, someone who loves you is going to be the one who is going to offer correction. Uh, when we were at Camp Shack, used the analogy, and I love it. I'm, I'm for the rest of my ministry going to absolutely now, rip it off. Shaquille O'Neal, right? Not Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal. There's, yeah. a, there's a, a youth pastor out of Chattanooga, great, great guy. Uh, his name is Shaq, and he he was saying that uh, if you give a two year old a butter knife, they're guaranteed to find the uh, the plugs in the room. Right. And when you try to take that butter knife away from them so they don't stick it in the plug, they're going to scream and pitch a fit. And it's going to feel like what you're doing is very unloving. It's uncaring. They're laying on the floor screaming because you, you how dare you not let me do what I want to do. But if you just back up just a little bit, you realize that letting this kid jam a butter knife into a, a, a socket is very unloving. I mean, if the kid could kill himself. But most likely, with 120 volts, he's just going to put himself in a world of hurt. And so the most loving thing I can do is take that butter knife away from him and say no. Mm -hmm. And so when someone is, doing, is living a lifestyle that's destructive and destroying, again, all of the, the, the tornado of their life is destroying everybody around them. What's the most loving thing to do for them, but also for their children, their spouse, their pa parents? is oftentimes trying to lovingly say, no, no, this is not the way you, you can behave. 
and so we're still applying the, the principle of first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then second, love your neighbor as yourself. But the application of that may at first look harsh. But we're still following. It, it, well, it often ethic. does because it often that first feeling oh, yeah. that you get when I mean, you know, when someone's corrected you or, you know, you've been the one who has been in the wrong and someone has stopped you from a particular behavior or said, don't do this. It hurts, you know, because we don't want to think we're wrong, you know, but we do. And it, it, it the first blush is always that, you know, that corrective, that feeling of um, I didn't do it perfectly. You know, I'm not I'm not the one who is sinless. Right. You know, I mean, we we all fall into that that category. But ultimately you look at it, you know, you take two days, three days, a week out, two weeks out and you go, oh yeah, I really needed that. I really needed someone to say, oh, yeah. shut up Donna or, you know, stop doing that. Yeah. And I, I, I've used as an example here, here at the church, one of the accountability uh, guidelines or fences, guardrails, whatever you want to call it, that's been put around my life is uh, there's a, an elder who's kind of been assigned to hold me accountable. And uh, the, the first time that we met after the elders chose this man, um, we had an appointment, you know, at one o'clock on a Monday, he's supposed to come by. And I fully expected, in my mind, I had the scenario built out that what we were going to do was sit down in my office and he's going to say, so how's everything going? I'm going to fine. And then that's going to be the end of it. It's going to be you know, no big deal. Cause I, I have nothing wrong going on. Right? <laughs> and so yeah. he walks in the office and I'm kind of sitting back at my desk and I heard him come in and then he's not in my office and he's not in my office and it's now five minutes and it's six minutes. And I walk out to, to the reception area and I'm like, Hey, Doug, we, we, we meet. And he goes, Oh, I'm, I'm talking to your wife. And Oh. It hit me that this he's man He's talking did, to my wife. He's not asking me if I think everything's okay. He's asking her what I'm doing with my time. Mm. And and I did none of us like that. I, I felt very uncomfortable. I felt he like violated you. I, I, <laughs> he had dug into your personal. I kind of went back to my office and hung around the door, and I'm li <laughs> listening into the principal's office. What are they talking about? I, I did, and I didn't feel. I didn't like that. I didn't like that. That someone looking over my shoulder. I didn't. I didn't like real questions being asked. Nobody does. But you know what? That that's the most healthy thing. And as I, you know, we've been right now, we're uh, in the Christian world looking at back across 2020 with all of the Christian leadership that has fallen. And there was oh, a, yeah. a New York Times article that went out this last um, Sunday that dealt with the, the, uh, the firing of the lead pastor at Hillsong, New York. Um, and that made me kind of sit back and ask myself, so what's if I look at the list of those who have fallen, and then I look at the list of those who have been faithful for years, what's the difference between the two? And I could be mistaken, but I think everyone that I can think of in the, the big picture who has fallen, they're accountable to people who aren't local to them. And everyone who seems to be faithful for 30, 40 years uh, the John Pipers, the John MacArthur's kind of guys, they're accountable to people who are local to them who actually have the authority to tell them what to do. And I've heard John MacArthur say, I was invited to go to speak on Larry King, and so I asked the elders if I could do that. And they gave me this list of requirements, and he followed it. In fact, I, th I thought it was funny because he shared the list with a group of young pastors that the elders had given him. And I recently, in the last three or four weeks, saw him giving an interview about COVID and what was going on at his church. And he's in the middle of explaining, uh, you know, why they've decided to re-meet. And I can see the expression on his face. Uh, and then he immediately stopped and said, you know, the reason why we have to meet is because we believe that Jesus died according to the scriptures and that three days later he was raised again according to, and he quoted the, the gospel that Paul lays out, which was one of the requirements yes. that the elders had given him, yes. that every time you speak publicly, you're required to give a short, concise 
telling of the gospel. Yeah. And so he immediately did that and got that out of the way. And you could see it in his body language. Oh, oh I'm letting, you know, because she's buttoning it up. It was a, you know, CNN kind of thing. Well, thank you for, well, before I do, uh, he had to. You know, I didn't engage with somebody the other day on um, social media, but I read a comment um, and it was about church attendance and it was about uh, COVID and the, you know, how uh, that contagious it was and why our church is still meeting. Obviously, they don't love people. Right. That was the comment. Just because they're meeting, uh, uh, that means they don't love people. And I wanted to engage in it, and I regret it now. I wish now that I had gone back because I just, I I Mm -mm. tend not to get into fights over social media, but I almost addressed it just to say. It's just slinging mud. Well, it is, but it's also public. And so other people, there's no one who is speaking back. Answer that. not a fool, Donna. And don't do I, it. Look, it wasn't him that I would have been answering. It was all the other people who yeah. were reading it that I was thinking of, not him, because he. That was my first thought. I thought, what a fool. And um, I, I, but I left it alone. But I wanted to point out to him the gospel. Right. I wanted to say the reason we're meeting is because there are needs in lives that are greater than the risk of getting sick. There are needs in these people's lives that go so deep that matter for eternity. And those are the points that I wanted to make and say, this is eternal stuff that you're dealing with. This is not about coming and sitting in here um, to be present, to be seen, to be heard, to be part of a group. This is because we are commanded by God and our souls need this. It is a need. It is a priority. And we're teaching our children what we're prioritizing as we go through this process. But I didn't answer him. I, 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 I regret it to a this day. Post or anything? I, I didn't. I didn't. And I regret it to this day. I wish that I had gone back engaged. And again, not him, right. but because of all the other people who are reading this and they're seeing this comment and I'm seeing it thrown out every so often now, not as it's not as prevalent here in the South um, because we are, you know, there's still some Bible Belt. Um, things that are happening down here, but you know, anytime that I, anything that I'm following that's out of DC or um, up north, there's a lot more of that in the comment sections that are going on about churches really don't care about people, or they wouldn't be risking people. They wouldn't be, and I'm like, look, we're taking all of the safety precautions that have been given to us by the CDC. We're not stupid, you know. Nobody wants it, and certainly nobody wants to pass it on to someone else. Yeah. You know, there's guilt associated with that. Let me just tell y'all, I was the first one in my house to come down with. But, um, you know, there's more to it than that. There's something eternal that's happening here. And people have needs of the soul, the mental things that we're addressing. You know, but those are all ethical dilemmas that are happening. Absolutely, they are. Yeah. And I want to close up our discussion about Christian ethics in with one of the things that we've kind of touched on, and that is, we must follow our conscience. When you as a believer, we believe as uh, Protestant uh, Christians that uh, in, in a principle called the priesthood of the believer, that every human being will individually stand before God and give an account. And so that because every individual does that, that you have to be convinced that the decisions you make in life uh, especially about these these gray areas. I'm not ta- clearly if the Bible tells us to do one thing or the other specifically, then we follow that without without question. Without question, yeah. But in those areas where it, it's hazy, I, I I look at Martin Luther's quote when he was brought before the Diet of Worms. He says, "Unless I'm convinced by proofs from Scripture or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I can and will not attract, for it is retract." For it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I am. God help me. That is really a summation of Christian ethics. That scripture, reason, and then our conscience. And not going against that voice that's the Holy Spirit pricking you in the back of your neck saying, this is what you should do. Just like we talked about helping people. I have had people that came up to the the church and I just felt like maybe somewhere deep in my heart, there's something here. And I spend more time with that person. I try to figure out what that is. Don't violate your conscience because when you begin searing your conscience and going against your conscience, 
that is soul cancer. It becomes easier and easier and easier to do it. You develop calluses on your conscience that uh, are really hard to, to smooth back out over your life. Loss of compassion. And so our first rule is we, we obey God. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We look to Scripture to see, okay, what does the God's Word say about this? Then equal up with close, just right there is treating another human being, another image bearer, the way I would want to be treated, to love my neighbor as myself. And then from that, I I take scripture, I take how is it that I want to be treated? And then with those two things together, I inform my conscience and then I follow my conscience, no matter what the consequences. And that, that may sometimes mean, and I've seen this in, in voting, where two brothers in Christ disagree. And when I'm asked, I say, brother, go to God's word, study God's word, inform yourself about the position, and then follow your conscience. And if you choose to do one thing and you choose to do another thing, that's okay. We can disagree with each other, but you follow your conscience. I have caught some heat because I've been public in saying that I I did not vote for Donald Trump. I I could not, um, in good conscience, pull that lever. Um, I did not uh, vote for the Democratic candidate. uh, And I have jokingly said in the past that I wrote in uh, one of our elders here at the church, and which I did the the first cycle, 2016. I I wrote in uh, Doug Pope, who I voted for. I, and I have had Christians who have come to me and said that they, they had a real problem with that. And as I've tried to explain to them, that I could not violate my conscience. And honestly, we don't really live in a battleground state. So it was an easy decision for me. I, I think it would yeah. have been harder had we lived in Ohio um, to, to kind of ignore the consequences. But I tried to make a decision based on what God's word says my ability to stand in front of people on a weekly basis and say, this is how we're supposed to live our lives. And finally, uh, what, what is it that I feel like my conscience is calling on me to do? And I would not violate my conscience. And so I would recommend that as you look at these dilemmas in your life, to first go to God's word, pray about it, bathe it in prayer. Try to take the characters out. Just what does the Bible say about how we should act in this situation? Reason through the, the, the situation. And then finally, follow your heart, follow your conscience. And follow your heart sounds it's like something totally different. That's not really what I mean. No, yeah. follow I your heart's never good advice, really. Because the heart's deceitful above all. Well, in that gray statement, <laughs> which fits perfectly with Christian ethics, go serve your king. This has been Not Another Church Podcast with your host, Pastor Tom. Thanks for listening and go serve your team.